This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. As the child of an OBGYN, I grew up somewhat more aware of women's experiences with medicine than the average boy. However, stories like this week's really reveal the gap between my secondhand knowledge and reality. Join this week's teller, Paula Carter, as she recalls how a particular moment with a new doctor kicks off a reflection on independent womanhood. Recorded live at Pub 626 in June 2016, Second Story is proud to present Femme Soul. I needed to refill a prescription for antidepressants. So I went to a doctor I had never seen before. I had just moved after painfully breaking off an engagement and finding myself in a strange city without a steady job. This was a few years ago. I sat in the exam room and waited. The walls were tooth enamel white. It was cold January. The doctor came in 20 minutes late looking down at my chart and asked me what I did for a living. I told her I was a writer. She wrote something down. How old are you? 31. Are you married? No. She looked up at me for the first time. Why not? She asked. <laughs> right? <laughs> why not? I wondered if she wanted me to tell her the whole story. Uh, why not? Just let me tell you why not. Why not? I started to cry. But my tears did not dissuade her. There are two things I've done in my life that I am glad for, she said. I became a doctor and I had a daughter. If you want a family, you need to start thinking about that now. Turns out lots of women have stories along these same lines. It seems you hit a certain age and if you haven't checked off the right boxes on the forms, it becomes your doctor's responsibility to question your life choices. But from what I've heard, most doctors are more subtle. Usually they say things like, I just want to make sure you have all of the information at your disposal so you can make the best choice for you. Then they proceed to tell you about fertility and how from here on out it just gets more dire. Perhaps I did not look like a person who could detect subtlety. <laughs> the doctor continued. Now, my husband, he's great. On planes, he always helps people put their bags up into the overhead compartment, always. And this is nice. But honestly, it can be a little annoying. But he's fine. All this is to say, certainly good enough. And together, we had a daughter who now lives in New York City. She's about your age. And just this week, she broke up with her boyfriend. Ah. There it was. I had walked into that office on the wrong day, the day that I suddenly looked strikingly similar to this woman's daughter, who also needed to think more about where her life was going. And unlike her daughter, I was a captive audience. After her speech, someone knocked on the door, sorry to interrupt. The doctor was called away for a moment to attend to something. I looked around the white room. There were cotton balls on the counter and a container with a silver lid. When I was a child, I used to think they looked like candy. I thought for a moment about that child and all of the future paths that had been both ascribed to her and waiting inside of her. Then I got up opened the door, and walked out. 
Little did the doctor know, her daughter and I are both pioneers. We are living in a monumental moment. For the first time in history, single women outnumber married women. The median age for a woman's first marriage has shot up to 27 after remaining around 22 for decades. There are many reasons this is now possible and happening. More access to education, more economic opportunities, less stigma around being unmarried, birth control, all things I have taken advantage of. One could say this is a movement, and the benefits are powerful. Things like greater equality and marriages built on true partnerships. However, all of us unmarried women didn't get together and decide to create a movement. Rather, things happened by choice or not, for good or bad. Like any social change, it comes down to thousands or millions of individual people having individual experiences that finally spill out into the world and appear as a trend. It's hard to be a pioneer, especially when you didn't set out to be a pioneer. It is like fashioning a life out of lead rather than clay. I was discussing this with my friend Wendy while walking downtown late one Saturday afternoon. She and I met here in Chicago through mutual friends. She is an accomplished woman in a leadership role at a large company. We were headed to a literary event. Around us was the warm sun of early summer. I've had this small old TV forever, she tells me. And I thought, why haven't I gotten a new one? And then I realized, I had always assumed my partner would be the one to bring the electronics to the relationship. <laughs> this kind of thinking is practical. Why waste the money when you might meet your person and their big screen TV at any moment? <laughs> it's also delusional. Personally, I was glad to hear this. I had my own stories along the same lines and it felt good to be honest about it. We crossed a street along with a number of other people off to their own events with their own concerns. She and I really weren't that close, but this shared identity was bonding us instantly. I feel like I'm in this weird sort of holding pattern. Not that that's the only thing I'm doing, of course, but I keep balking at making major life changes, thinking that I should wait. We looked at each other, both exasperated with ourselves and glad to have someone to talk to who understood what it is to be a straight single woman in her mid to late 30s. When said out loud on a busy street, of course these things seem silly. But that is just it. The conditioning is so subtle, neither of us had realized just how silly for a long, long time. Having a partner has its own challenges. In fact, my conversations with girlfriends who are in relationships or married often deal with the issues they're having with their partners, something I am familiar with. In my most recent relationship, my partner worked a lot, a lot, a lot. Then there were the housekeeping habits, always an issue somehow. Then the more powerful or painful things like feeling criticized or ignored by someone you really love. As my relationship with my fiance was ending, I remember feeling a mixture of love and confusion and anger. I remember being on the phone with my friend Roberta a few months before I was supposed to get married and having her say to me, you don't have to get married, you know. And I didn't. 
Now I see that what I'm struggling with isn't about actual marriage. It is about expectation and what is still considered the normal way to make a life. Expectations are changing, but right now it's hard not to feel I'm doing it wrong. At brunch with a male friend, I told him about some of these concerns. I told him, I'm trying to let go, be at peace, live my life. But it's hard not to feel a crazy urgency because I would like kids. We ordered fancy egg dishes and the other people surrounding us seemed appropriately posh. He patiently listened to me and nodded. I told him, I've never wanted to be or thought of myself as a woman who had pushed someone towards commitment. I've certainly never been someone who was baby crazy. So suddenly I feel put in this strange and awkward position. I was getting a little exasperated and worked up. My coffee kept being refilled. Then he said, between bites, yes, you'll be a nicer person once you're over 40. <laughs> what? <laughs> I wanted to spit in his eye right then and when I'm over 40. What does that even mean? He is my age, and at the time of the commitment, or time of the comment, he was also not in a relationship heading towards commitment. But he could shoot off blase quips without a moment of reflection. How is it that this is just one more way women find themselves at a disadvantage? I'm pretty sure his doctor has never talked with him about if he wants a family. The waiter came around, and I smiled and said we were doing fine. What are you saying, I asked. Well, once the baby question is no longer a concern, you'll relax a little. Relax? Dude, you're getting ready to see just how not nice I can be, I said. Or actually, I didn't say. I don't remember what I said. That is what I think later I should have said. <laughs> Whatever I did say, he backpedaled a little. He is a psychologist, and I could see he was looking at me clinically. In fact, previously we had discussed that these types of concerns he sees often in his patients. He too has noticed a trend. After brunch, we went to a bookstore and I stood in the feminist section, <laughs> angrily pulling out books that I hoped would give me more ammunition for future moments like those. And then there's Katie, my oldest friend. Both of us are pioneers. We're going to put the girls on ice, is how she says it. She's talking about her eggs. She has no choice. She has breast cancer. Radiation, then tamoxifen for five years, which comes with a long list of warnings that starts with, using this medication while pregnant can harm your unborn baby. No babies for five years. We are on the phone talking, our primary occupation for 15 years now. I know it is 15 because in every card she has ever sent me, she counts it down. Can you believe we have been friends for four years? Seven years? Fifteen years? And I guess this is why. So that when life turns out differently, there is someone there to remind you how you got here. Are you nervous? I ask. She'll have to pump her body with hormones before the procedure. She says no. I just might get a number of calls from her in various emotional states. That I already knew. Recently, the procedure went from experimental to mainstream. 
Due to flash freezing technology known as vitrification, it is open season on eggs. After she has the procedure and her eggs are safely stored for some future day, I want to know all about it. I want to know because I'm worried about her, but not just her. A few weeks later, I go out to see her for a visit. Katie and I both grew up in the Midwest. Now she lives in Boston. She had emailed me and said she needed me to come. She wasn't sure if she could go through her first few rounds of radiation otherwise. My suitcase is in her guest room. We are on her couch and getting right down to it. She is beautiful with her blonde hair, short stubby fingers, and slightly greasy skin from worrying. But you can't talk about cancer and beauty. It's cliche. Nobody can hear it. Just like it means so little when someone says clean as a whistle or something costs them an arm and a leg. In French, they say it costs the eyes right out of my head. Now that's something that resonates. <laughs> Which body parts is this going to cost? We don't know yet. Part of the reason she needs this visit is because she is contemplating ending a relationship. A relationship that has been on again, off again for the past few years, has given her hope and love, pain and anger. A relationship she wanted to succeed but seems now like it won't. In a few months, she will be reading, It's Not You, 27 Wrong Reasons You're Single. Katie says to me, I remember when I first started working. I was 25. Some of the women I worked with were in their mid-30s, and they weren't married. I remember thinking, what are they doing? I'm not going to do that. Katie works in international public health. She regularly travels to places like Ghana and Tanzania, as do her coworkers. I remember that, too. At my first job, there was a woman who was maybe 37, and she met this guy on the bus, and they ended up getting married, and everyone was so excited for her. But I remember wondering what was up, that it took her that long. It seemed to point to some flaw. I never wondered what had come before. All the things in those 37 years that might have happened. The next day, Katie and I go to Dana-Farber, we park in the hospital's garage and then go through a number of hallways until we come to the Department of Radiation Oncology. We enter, and the receptionist greets Katie with familiarity. We go into a room where she changes into her gown to undergo radiation. I have seen her in so many different states. But as she turns to me in her gown, I will never, in all of our 15 years, have seen her look so small. And I will never, in all of our 15 years, have been happier to be with her. We will then sit in the waiting room and together do a puzzle of a fall day. And I will think how amazing we are. Strong, powerful, pioneering women. This story was curated by Reshmi Hazra Rustabaki, produced by Max Spitz, and directed by Liz Rice, with music and sound design by Nick Kawahara. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. 
Our programming is made possible by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, Jeffrey and Joan Goldwater, Katie and Peter Hauser, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, second Story Podcast.